He's entering into his ministry. Now perhaps he will storm the gates of Jerusalem and remove the Romans. Maybe he will set up his kingdom and conquer all earthly opposition. He will be led by the Spirit to accomplish these things. Read the next words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What? He's supposed to be ministering to people. He's supposed to live a life that enables him. And and according to the Jews, what what they thought, he's supposed to be the king. Why did the king doesn't go to the wilderness? Just as the herald to the king isn't supposed to come into the wilderness. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. If you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4, Matthew 4, I'll be reading verses 1 through 11. If you'll stand with me, I'll read those verses. And we will begin into the, the temptation of the king, the temptation of the king. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into this holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Please be seated. And we had the joy last night of engaging in our annual underground church. And in that particular activity, you have teens, and we had about 80, 80 teens that were in groups going all over the city, trying to find contacts and clues in order to get them to a secret meeting place to worship. And in this way, we kind of simulate what it might be like to be in a place where there was persecution for believers who tried to worship together. Now, all along the way, these teens have to battle against the secret police who use all means at their disposal to lure the teens into a position where they can capture them by shooting them with water guns and then take them to jail. Now, the police had all kinds of varieties of disguises and tactics to make their captures. Some dressed up like roadside workers, roadside uh, garbage collectors, and then would turn and spray them when the teens came close. Some had an industrial water sprayer hooked up to their, their, the lighter in their car so it would spray about 40 to 45 feet. They didn't even have to get close. However, the sneakiest tactics involved several of our secret police setting themselves up as the very contact that the teens were supposed to be getting the clues from. So they would sit out in the park, innocently there, like contacts, the ones that were supposed to give the envelopes. And so the teens would come just assuming, oh, here's my contact, because they look familiar, they're from the church, and they'd walk up to receive their envelope, and instead they would receive water gun in the face. (laughs) Temptation 
is often most difficult when it comes from those that we would expect for to, to give us what is true. And so when it disguises itself, when it seems to be something that it is not, something that we would not easily interpret as either a temptation or something that is wrong, that's when it is most deadly. But this, of course, is where Satan desires to get us most quickly. And he often tempts us and defeats us most easily in this way. And temptation is something that will be with us from the moment we become aware of it as we are born into this world to the day that we die. We continually wrestle with the world and with the flesh and with the devil and battling the desires to sin that continually rise up. And in the midst of this battle, it is comforting to know that we have a God who can truly understand our weaknesses and our temptations in the deepest possible way. Now, another thing that temptation accomplishes for us, much like our underground church last night, is to remind us of the daily intensity of the spiritual battle. No, we weren't actually being persecuted last night, but it reminds us that all around the world people are, and that in our own situation where we are not receiving actual physical persecution for the most part, that it is that, that time where sometimes the temptation is strongest to simply be lulled to sleep, to forget that there is a spiritual battle. As long as we remain in this world, however, the battle will rage. Just as Jesus was prepared for the spiritual battle and won it, so we too need to be prepared so that we may defeat sin in our daily struggles with the world and with the flesh and with the devil. So what we'll see is we just begin to introduce the temptation of Christ this morning. We'll, We'll just start with an introduction to it, essentially, is that the temptation of Jesus demonstrates to us the reality of the spiritual battle, and our need to be prepared for the schemes of the evil one who continually seeks to deceive and to defeat us. Again, the temptation of Jesus demonstrates to us the reality of the spiritual battle and our need to be prepared for the schemes of the evil one who continually seeks to deceive us and to defeat us. He never rests in this. Now, if you drop your eyes down to the first word of chapter 4, verse 1, it says, then... So this indicates to us that we are moving in chronological progression. That's usually what the word is there for. If you were reading in the book of Mark, you would see the word immediately. Well, what's the then? What happened before the then? What happened before the immediately? Well, last week we discussed the commissioning of the king, right? That is where Jesus comes, and in an act of of humility that's, again, surprising to us, he enters into his ministry through baptism, That is, essentially identifying with sinful people, even though he knew no sin, and receiving a baptism that was for repentance. And you remember what he told John when he comes, and John says, wait a minute, why are you coming to be baptized by me? I should be baptizing you. John knew that he was a sinner, even though he was a great prophet. He knew that he was not sinless. And so he essentially needed Jesus' baptism. He needed to be baptized, as it were, by Jesus for repentance. But Jesus says, if you remember, this is in chapter 3, He says, permit it, verse 15, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So he is baptized according to the will of his Father, and so that he might identify with us, his people, really setting the tone for his entire ministry, that he would ultimately go to the cross, having lived our perfect life that we could never live, and then taking the death that we could never die, so that he might provide the penalty that we could never pay. And again, in this amazing humility, Jesus enters into his ministry. He is commissioned. Now, there was more to it, remember. He was not only baptized, but he was also anointed. And really, in another act of humility, where the Spirit comes down upon Christ in invisible form, just representing what is actually what's happening, that the Spirit of God is that Jesus is being anointed with the Spirit of God so that he might be led by and empowered by that Spirit throughout his ministry. And we talked a bit about the astounding fact that the one who was the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, was also fully and totally human and chose 
in his humanness to live according to the leading of the direction of the spirit of God. What humility that the second member of the Trinity would submit to the third member of the Trinity, whose job it really is, is to exalt both the other two. And yet he comes underneath the spirit of God so that he might be led by the spirit in essentially the same way as we are to be led by the spirit. Now, we aren't God. And so for us, it's exaltation to be led by the Spirit. But for the Son of God to be led in such a way should and does astound us. He was baptized. He was anointed by the Spirit. So he was empowered for his ministry, and he was led by the Spirit from that point on. Baptized, anointed, and then you remember he was commended. Verse 17, and behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Even here there are hints of humility as the Father commends his Son who now has taken on flesh and will please the Father by going to the cross. He who was equal with God did not regard it right or did not regard it necessary to, to claim that equality, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and was made in the likeness of men. And so everywhere in the life of Christ we have seen humility. He comes in humble fashion, born in a manger, born as a man, born to a virgin. He, he lives in obscurity for 30 years in the backwater of Nazareth, a nowhere person from a nowhere town. And then he enters into his ministry in humility and baptism, being anointed then by the Spirit of God, commended by his Father as the one who will take on flesh and ultimately flesh unto death that he might bear our penalty. Well, there's been a lot of humility up to this point. So maybe now it is time, now that he's anointed by the Spirit, now that he has the power of God in that way, still, again, always being fully the second member of the Trinity, perhaps something amazing will happen now. Perhaps there will be a glorious display of his power. Well, that's true, but it's kind of going to come in a way that we would not imagine. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit, and here we have it. He's entering into his ministry. Now perhaps he will storm the gates of Jerusalem and remove the Romans. Maybe he will set up his kingdom and conquer all earthly opposition. He will be led by the Spirit to accomplish these things. Read the next words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. What? He's supposed to be ministering to people. He's supposed to live a life that enables him. And, and according to the Jews, what, what they thought, he was supposed to be the king. Why did the king doesn't go to the wilderness? Just as the herald to the king isn't supposed to come into the wilderness to proclaim it, so the king is not supposed to leave his commissioning and go into the wilderness. He's supposed to enter into his work. Well, he is, but not only is he in the wilderness, it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What kind of a beginning is that? To whom would you do that? The Spirit of God says it's time to go into the wilderness so that you can be tempted by the enemy of your soul. And I think sometimes, as we consider even our own lives, we might wonder similar things. We're going to see many parallels in the life of Christ and his temptation to our own and what God does, and we're going to learn how to respond to those temptations as a result of this. But this, as far as the, our salvation history timeline, that the idea that the Son of God would really, as his first act after his commissioning, go away into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one should stun us. We're familiar with the story, the historical narrative but I'm not sure we fully understand the nature of what is actually going on here and even the humility that is found here. Well, the question springs to our mind, why the temptation? Let's just get a brief overview. We're not on the outline yet, but why would this happen? I think we can kind of look at it from two different ways. You might look at it from essentially the, the uh, horizontal viewpoint, and that would really be Satan's viewpoint, right? He's not, 
eternal, remember. He is a created being. He's not omniscient. He's not everywhere. So he views this as what? This is the perfect time. I couldn't get rid of Christ at his birth. I tried killing the babies. Now here he's starting his ministry. Now's the time to defeat him. And so it seems in, in, the, in the historical timeline that Satan perceives an opportunity. In fact, we know that to be true because at the end of this narrative, it says he left him, Right, And we learn from Luke that he left him until it was an opportune time, as in another opportune time. So he views this as, this is a perfect opportunity. So kind of horizontally, in a historical fashion, this is the perfect time for Satan to come. So that's why this happens. But in a bigger picture, it seems that God has at least several reasons, the Father has at least several reasons for having the Spirit lead the Son into the wilderness to be tempted. And I think probably the first of these, and we'll flesh these out over the entire time of our study of Christ's temptation, is to demonstrate victory through even this humility again. At the very beginning, after being anointed by by the Spirit, after being commended by the Father, entering into baptism, he's going to demonstrate his ability to win this battle. And so we see that from the beginning. John MacArthur says this, Jesus' victory, speaking of his victory here in the temptation, demonstrates his divine kingship, his royal power to resist the only other great ruler and dominion in the universe, Satan himself. Christ here wins his first direct battle, at least as far as in his ministry, his first direct battle with his great enemy, and therefore gives evidence of his glorious right and power as the king of kings and lord of lords, the supreme ruler of all creation, the only God. So we get a picture of that as he enters into temptation by the only true enemy in the universe, the fundamental enemy in the universe, which is the evil one. Oh, we think other things are enemies. We discussed that last night in our underground church. We fight against men. We fight against governments. We're concerned about those things. And yes, those are are pawns, tools in the hands of the evil one. But there's only one true enemy, and that's the spiritual forces that are directed by the evil one himself. We'll see more of that. And Jesus, at the very beginning here, demonstrates his suitability to defeat them as the evil one begins to tempt him, begins to assail his humanness and to come against it trying to defeat him in that way. But I think there's another reason why we see this, why this happens at the beginning, is, is really this sets a pattern for us for our own victory. Yes, Christ shows victory here, and he is being tempted, again, as fully man. You don't tempt the Son of God, as it were. You don't tempt the second member of the Trinity. You tempt the man, Jesus. Remember, that's the two natures of Christ. They're both bound up equally in Christ, but they're not commingled. And so he's being tempted here. But then Christ, in his full humanness, sets the pattern for us and our victory. We see he's led by the Spirit. We find from Luke, we'll see in a minute, that he's full of the Spirit as he, as he is tempted. And it seems that he's tempted all throughout these 40 days and 40 nights, not only at the end. And he finds victory, he pursues victory in this temptation through the power of the Spirit and through the truth of the Word of God, which is exactly how we find victory. It is exactly how we overcome temptation. So we see here both the victory of Christ as well as a pattern for us to be victorious as well. So we will seek to flesh those things out as we work our way through the circumstances of the temptation. And that's all we'll get to this morning, the circumstances. First, the leading. How did he get here? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Really, then the first act after his being anointed by the Spirit is that the Spirit takes charge and the Spirit gives direction. Now, it doesn't say exactly how this works. In in New Testament times, there's several different ways that people could be led by the Spirit. Sometimes the Spirit would say, do this, would speak in an audible voice through someone right, or to them. And For example, when the church is trying to decide who to send out to be missionaries and the Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. 
No, those things happened in New Testament times. They happened where there were apostles and prophets, and there was the, the direct proclamation of God's word through people. And the Spirit of God did this and sometimes spoke himself. Now, there also is another way that the Spirit led. In one sense, even more amazingly, sometimes the Spirit would lead by snatching people away. We know Philip was out. He was doing his evangelistic work. He finishes up with the Ethiopian eunuch, and the Spirit snatches him away. That's pretty serious leading. I was like, you will go here. doesn't seem like that's exactly what happened here with Christ. He wasn't snatched away. And, then, and what we find is, as we end the New Testament and the book of Acts, that the snatchings away and the direct speaking of the Spirit of God is then subsumed as we have the full canon of Scripture, the, the foundation of the church established. And so there's another means by which the leading of the Spirit now comes to the fore. And whether this is exactly what was happening with Christ, it seems that very possibly it was. This kind of leading is, is not a voice speaking to us. That's not what we are to expect today. It isn't being snatched away. It is the fullness of the Spirit that is the Spirit of God working in our inner man, in our affections, in our will, and in our intellect to direct us according to wisdom, according to desire, and according to purpose. And so we find those things laid out for us, right? being led by the Spirit of God in that way in verses like Ephesians 5.16. It says, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's what Jesus was doing. He was understanding what the will of the Lord was, to go into the desert for temptation. But that was through the Spirit. Because it says, and do not get drunk with wine in Ephesians 5.18, but be filled with the Spirit. And Luke, in Luke chapter 4, it says, Jesus, full of the Spirit. There was no sin in Jesus which was keeping the Spirit from full operation within him. All the Spirit of God inside of Christ and all the Spirit of God inside believers. But it is sin in us that keeps us from operating fully according to that. Not so Christ. No sin there to mar the work of the Spirit of God. So he's full of the Spirit of God. The Spirit is working in his inner man to direct him then through wisdom, through desire, through purpose, to end up where he needs to go. That seems to be the best understanding even here of what is happening with Jesus. Full of the Spirit, he goes into the wilderness. Impelled is the work Mark uses. Not snatched, not dragged, but impelled. Jesus in his mind and heart and will saying, I have to go. A separate speaking of the Spirit certainly doesn't indicate that here. And for us today, this is how he works through these things as we are informed by the truth of the Word of God. And how do I know that we have to be informed by the truth of the Word of God? Well, Colossians 3.16. Really, it's a partner passage to Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the Spirit. It says this, Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. The Word of Christ richly dwells, As it does so, it then affects our inner man, our mind, our will, and our affections, directing us to the things that God wants, being led by the Spirit. Now, either way, that's the way that we are led by the Spirit now. Either way, in the life of Christ, he is led then into the wilderness, and he is following the Spirit of God. Romans 8.14 says this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You must be being led by the Spirit. And ever increasingly, as you are filled with him. So Jesus ends up coming underneath, yielding to, as it were, his will, to the will of the Spirit of God, working within his inner man, and he then goes into the wilderness where he is supposed to go, in obedience to the will of God, to accomplish the work of God. That's what happens when you are led by the Spirit. This is what Jesus did all throughout his life, perfectly being led by the Spirit in every way, accomplishing everything that the Lord would have. Would that it be with us? that we too would live in this way, led by the Spirit. Well, he's led by the Spirit where? Again, this surprises us. 
into the wilderness. So it goes out, and apparently it's, not, it's clearly not the same place where the baptism has just taken place. That was by the Jordan. There was lots of people there. It wasn't a wilderness. It was where it was by the river. And so now Jesus goes away from the crowds and away from the people, and we're not sure exactly where he goes. It doesn't help us to know that he eventually went to Jerusalem and then up on a high mountain because he was transported those places. He could have been gone there from anywhere. And so we don't know exactly where he went, except that he went where nobody else was, which also indicates to us the very intent of, of Jesus himself to make sure that he made this incident known because no one else was with him. No disciples at this point. John the Baptist isn't there. It's just Jesus. So how does Matthew know this? Well, the Spirit could reveal it to him directly, but it would seem that it's just Jesus himself who told his disciples about this so that they would know that this is what happened. This is where he went after he was commissioned. He goes away into the wilderness. Now, we're going to flesh this out a little bit more. The wilderness has, there's lots of times in Scripture where the wilderness is discussed. Already with John the Baptist, we saw that's where he came. Prophets often came out into the wilderness, and they would proclaim these things. But additionally, I think we'll find it very interesting that Jesus quotes, he's going to be quoting from Scripture all throughout these temptations, and he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8 exclusively, those in, in those four chapters, three chapters, and he really that's the time when Israel was in the wilderness. It seems very possible that there's a parallel here between Israel's failure in the wilderness, and really that's why they were in the wilderness was because of their failure, and Jesus' absolute triumph that he wins in the wilderness. He is not defeated there. So it would seem that purposely the Spirit of God doing this, not having necessarily to read a motif in here, but simply all of these things happening as the Spirit of God directs and Jesus quoting from these very places so that we might see a parallel. And I think that that is true. What Israel as a race could not do, Jesus as their king could and he did. Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the Sola and Essentials conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online And we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.